the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, we are delighted to be here. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us on 9.30 a.m. The Answer for Caregiver SOS On Air. Carol is the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a nationally known gerontologist, graduate of Trinity University and the University of the Incarnate Word, and has spent a whole lot of years, although she's not that old, working in the field of seniors and aging and caregiving, and it is always a delight uh, to join her on these programs. Well, thank you very much. You know, when I started out, uh, people would say, aren't you too young to be working in aging? They've stopped saying that. Ooh, Ooh, ow. Ouch. Well, they should be more compassionate. And we have a great <laughs> guest joining us in just a couple of moments, uh, Virginia Hunter Sampson, who has written Compassion Magic and spends a whole lot of time talking about and cultivating compassion. Well, and I love, you know, we We talked about it a little bit last week, but um, we have our Caregiver Summit coming up, our 2017 Caregiver Summit, and we're trying to talk more about the positive aspects of caregiving, uh, even though we we know it's tough. We know there's stress. We know it's difficult, um, but we also know that we get back something, Uh, and so, you know, Virginia Sampson is one of those people who talks about compassion. We're going to have um, on on the summit, we've got Barry Jacobs, who we've had on the show in the past. And he talks about, uh, you know, compassion and mindfulness and spirituality. So the, the summit is November the 9th. I know it's only September, but it's never too soon to register. It's free. We're at the Whitley Theological Center in San Antonio. Um, and in addition to Barry Jacobs... We're going to have Dr. Musi, which have you heard him speak from the Bar Shop Institute? I have heard him, and he is fabulous. You know, he's got the coolest research, uh, really, really mind-blowing kinds of research. MD and a scientist. Yes, yes, and a scientist. uh, And not the boring kind, but the, wow, that's kind of cool kind of research. Um, As well as Cynthia Hazel, who talks about mindfulness. Uh, So... Mark, November 9th on your calendar. You have it on your calendar, Ron? Oh, it's already on my calendar. It's on the calendar. It's, it's on there. my calendar. Free flu shots. Free flu shots. And the whole thing is free, free lunch. So come here with some of our nationally known speakers. Best research in the country. Uh, free lunch. And it's all at the Caregiver Summit on November 9th. At, and we register at caregiversos.org. Sounds perfect. And one of the things that often comes up in these caregiver summits is how caregivers deal with stress. And you've got some information on that to share with us today. Stress and the caregiver. Well, yeah, we talk a lot about stress all the time. Um, And the New York Times had this really long article recently on stress. Um, And they had a little quiz, you know, how to determine if you were stressed out. Um, and you and you know you know do you, do you feel stressed during the day? Is your heart racing? Um, how often does this happen? And so what I thought was interesting about the article, you know, it does talk about changing your perspective, and we talk about that in our stress busting class. Uh, but the way that they were coming at it was, you know, if you're stressed out, do you ever get stressed, Ron, where you feel like your heart's racing and you're breathing faster and you just feel like you're overwhelmed? Yes. And so they were saying, instead of thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, this stress is killing me. I've got all this anxiety. This must be terrible. This is terrible, terrible. Think about, you know, I'm getting more oxygen. My body is anticipating, you know, what it needs to get through this stress. I am ready for this challenge. 
It happens often when our kids run in three different directions. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, in a which parking one do we, lot? Yeah, in which a parking one do we lot. catch? Yeah. There's two of us. There's three of them. Exactly. Which one yeah. do we? You know, right. you, just, you just have to be fast enough. One, you or Gina, you got to catch two. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, one of you has to catch two. And we don't choose which one we want to be see squashed. We get them all. <laughs> you just get them all. But you know, and so, but you, but you have to put the positives. But you know, you're going to catch them. Yes. You can't just be stressed out about it. Exactly. And so, really thinking about when you're feeling stressed out think of that if as your body telling you that you're charging up you're ramping up your battery and you can do this you can deal with this challenge and and the other thing that i thought was interesting they were talking about practicing stress conditioning yourself so they were saying you know think about people who do really um you know, stressful, you know, people that climb mountains and people that do kind of crazy stuff that's really, really not most of us wouldn't do. Or think of people in the military. Think of firemen. Think of policemen. What do they all have in common? Stress. Well, they practice getting themselves into stressful situations. There's training that exactly. they go through. There's physical training. There's emotional training. You don't just go out on the street um, and become a firefighter or a policeman without some sort of training of getting yourself in a really stressful situation, possibly with weapons and bad guys. Yes. Um, but they don't just do that. They don't just go out there and do and it. And how to deal with it. And how to deal with it. So they're saying there are things that you can do to test your stress and kind of condition yourself and realize that you can deal with it. Singing karaoke, being one of them on a microphone. Now, see, that doesn't sound so bad. And if you love to sing karaoke, pick something else that's harder. Um, Flamingo dancing. Flamingo dancing. Running a marathon, a Scrabble competition, um, you know, climb a mountain, do some kayaking. You know, something that tests you um, and prepares you so that you know that when the time comes, you're going to be ready. So I just thought that was where, you know, we don't necessarily think about practicing stress. But the idea, you know, that um, dealing with stress, you have to educate yourself on what's to come. And so that's why when somebody has Alzheimer's, we tell our caregivers, get education about Alzheimer's. Whatever the disease is, educate yourself so that you know about it. Um, if you, you know, rehearse you know, remember, you know, the rehearsal you have when someone's having a baby, they always show in the movies that they're planning this out and they practice getting in the car, going down to the hospital. You know, how many of us make a game out of uh, rehearsing for when a loved one has to have a trip to the hospital? You know, the person that we're caring for, re- rehearsing that. Um, and then when the stressful event does happen, you've practiced it, you've educated yourself, you're ready to execute. And so maybe that's going to help when things really do get tough. Years ago, I went through the uh, FBI Citizens Academy here, and one of the opportunities you had was to uh, do one of those simulated uh, shoot-don't-shoot uh, experiences. And did you pull the trigger too soon? I killed a lot of civilians. I did. I always think of that. What is that? Men in Black, where yeah. the guy gets the gun out. Right. Why did you know right. all the every, all the aliens are coming? He shoots little Susie. Why yeah. did you do that? Well, exactly. it was, you know, what's little Susie doing out with all those monsters? My husband took that FBI Academy. Loved it. Oh, it was fabulous. Yeah. And so, and how did you feel? Why did you Why did you kill the civilians, Ron? Uh, because I I reacted too quickly. Reacted to because quickly. I was uh, you were stressed that out. I'd get shot. <laughs> yeah. I was stressed out. Right. <laughs> You're gonna protect. I mean, it's all simulated, but but it becomes very real. Right. Right. So, do you did you come out of that feeling like you learned something and that you might react differently in real life? Or are you still gonna? Do I need to like run the other <laughs> no, way okay. when something you're happens? You're okay. Uh, one other thing, like that, I did. I went to a, a via bus rodeo where uh, some media folks, myself included, got to drive a via bus uh, around turns and down streets, and, and the orange cones were pedestrians. Don't oh, ask. Don't. <laughs> How many cones? I killed a lot of orange oh, cones. Oh, now, see, I got yelled at once from an actual p- military policeman when my husband was in the service because he said I almost hit the orange cone. I said, <laughs> but I didn't. That's right. good driving. Exactly. <laughs> well, I did, let me tell you. Wow, one last Ron, one. I had no idea. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ron's practiced a that lot of so stressful, <laughs> stressful situations. And, and you, you know, you don't really think about it. You see buses on the street or big 18-wheelers. Right. Uh, and, and the people who drive them look so relaxed and they're, you know, in control. It's tough. 
Well, yeah, and if you want to really be t- tried hauling a U-Haul, you know, stay away from other U-Haul trailers. <laughs> <laughs> you see somebody ha- pu- pulling a U-Haul, they probably don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I saw an ad for a truck <laughs> the really other day. It's really hard. There was a truck ad where they have automatic backup with a uh, trailer yeah, because attached. because if you, if you have to back up that U-Haul, no. I mean, forget it. Just Can't forget it. it. You're going to jackknife it. You just forget it. Exactly. So tell me, you have come across a, a wonderful study, The Seven Things... We should or shouldn't put on our faces. Well, I have to admit, I, I saw the I saw the headline. I was like, seven things you shouldn't should or shouldn't put on your face." Now, you know, many caregivers are women, and women in particular are always looking for the magical potion to put on your face. And so, I, I had to read the article about what you should and shouldn't put on your face. And then I started laughing because a some of the things I have put on my <laughs> face, and b. <laughs> Some of the things that would never occur to me to put on my face. So the first one is petroleum jelly. Oh. You know how thick it is? Yes. Yeah. But, you know, my grandmother used to do that. It would not occur to me now. But the reality is, as we get older, ladies, um, you know, or men, you know, we, we lose a lot of moisture. And put, there's nothing like petroleum jelly to lock in, you know, all that good stuff on your face. So I, I've used it on my lips. Yeah, on your lips. So, yeah, when they get dry. So, petroleum jelly, which, wow. I, do people still buy that? Yeah, they still they do, do, and it tastes awful. It, it does. It doesn't smell good. It, it smells like lips. petroleum. Exactly. <laughs> Actually. That's the name. Yeah. So, you know, alcohol products. I mean, that's, the, you know, everything has alcohol in it, most skin products. Yeah, but that's what you use when you're younger and you've got the blemishes, which it, there should be a law. I'm going to write my congressman. should be a law that you can't have blemishes after the age of 30 because exactly. that's just wrong. Exactly. It's wrong in so many ways. The one that made me laugh was toothpaste. Have you ever put toothpaste on your face? No, but I've seen my wife do that. Really? See that one? I missed that beauty tip. I haven't done it. Uh, apparently, it is for uh, blemishes, but... Um, to make pimples go away. Yeah, yeah. I, so I don't know why. It works. They said if it burns, <laughs> don't do it, which I suspect has to do with the mintiness quality of I would the, think. Tooth, the toothpaste. Wow. Now, the, when I get my uh, manicure or a pedicure, if you've done this recently, they may have like rubbed your skin with lime or lemon. Yes. Um, and what they're saying here is that really apple cider vinegar is probably better than those because those are really, really acidic. Um, but I don't know. And the idea is to what? Kill fungus? You know, yeah, it's to kill the bacteria and brighten your skin. Uh, you know, But apple cider vinegar is the new magic thing. Obviously, body lotion, they make face lotion. You can tell a difference with the sunscreen if it's for your face versus for your body, I think. I, really? Yeah. This is called Caregiver <laughs> SOS Beauty Tips. Um, and then the last one was baking baking soda. Huh. Which my I don't know. It's like you put baking soda everywhere else in your house. I put you it in clean the refrigerator. With it, you put it in the refrigerator. Well, apparently some people put it in water and use it as an abrasive. Personally, if I'm going to use it to clean my sink, I'm probably not going to clean my face with it. Interesting. <laughs> hey, up next, Virginia Sampson joins us. It, but you got to have you know gotta a lot of compassion, compassion in life. We talk about it. On Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us Sunday afternoons at 6 p.m. If you're Medicare eligible, have I got a great deal for you. Absolutely free, and it's full of fun. You can explore all of the stuff at the new Witty on Broadway. Join WellMed for WellMed Day at the Witty, 10 a.m. to noon, Thursday, September 21st, and you'll enjoy the new Witty and a chance to meet all of the great folks at WellMed. Free food, too. Join us on September 21st at the Witty, 3801 Broadway. No registration needed. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And as we have been promising you, we've got a great guest who has joined us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline, Virginia Sampson author of Compassion Magic, also has a children's series about compassion, dealing with the kinds of issues that a whole lot of us would do well to understand and benefit from. Earned her Juris Doctor degree from Loyola Law School in L.A. She's been practicing litigation uh, since 1982, for almost 35 years. And Virginia has had, her bio says, a full and challenging life. 
She has been a full-time caregiver to her husband, who died from ALS, a victim of domestic violence, a single parent to four children, a widow, a divorcee, a step-parent, and a whole lot more. And uh, first of all, welcome to the show. And having said all that, I can't imagine what a whole lot more is. <laughs> well, uh, I'm drawing a blank right now on that, honestly, but I think that's the highlights. Uh, you know, just kind of other things people have gone through, a very difficult childhood, very difficult marriages. Um, that's what I think what I mean by a whole lot more. So having a series sa- of challenges. Having said all that, how in the world did you then embrace compassion? I think out of the difficulties. I think you can either become bitter and angry, or you can choose to see it in a different way. And I think as part of that journey, you learn to have compassion for yourself, and you learn to have compassion for other people. And I think that kind of transforms it from a bitter disappointing experience into something that I wouldn't say you see positively, but you see it as a positive, as a, as a way that you have grown in a positive or positive direction. So, you know, you, you've taught, you've taught courses on compassion. You have a book about compassion and you talk a little bit about some of the science around compassion. What is it that we don't know? It sounds like we're underestimating this. Right. So there's been a movement that started with positive psychology, but there's been a movement around the United States and worldwide to by social scientists and psychologists to turn the idea of compassion from kind of one of those touchy-feely things that, you know, it's fluff in our life. You know, you can live without it. If you have it, it's great. If you don't, it's not a big deal. To recognize that it's really vital to our ability to thrive, but also to survive. And so they've been doing research at places like Berkeley, Stanford, all over the country. Um, and they've been talking about how trying to do, trying to do research and get science-based evidence that compassion is critical for our uh, survival and certainly for us, us to thrive. And when you say compassion, how do you define that? So compassion is a little bit different than empathy. It involves empathy. So compassion is when you see someone is in pain or distress. Uh, coupled with the desire to help them. So empathy is more the first part where you see somebody in distress and you, you know, you feel, you know, you feel their pain, as we say. But it's one step further with compassion. You actually move, take action to help them. It can be something small. It can be something big. But you, you take some action to help alleviate whatever their distress is. Well, I, I admit I, I was fascinated. Just uh, yesterday, I was had to find something in the desk drawer I never clean out. Uh, and I had saved one quote from the Dalai Lama that said, you know, if you have to look down on someone to practice compassion, you're not in the right place. And so, yes. I, you know, and I think that a lot of us um, sometimes, you know, when we're when we take out our compassion, you know, we're standing on the we're standing looking almost down at the downtrodden, at the people who are suffering. Uh, and we can feel that we're in a different place than them. You know, would you do you think the Dalai Lama was on the right track? Absolutely. I think we confuse compassion with pity. Um, and I think pity comes, as you just said, from a place of superiority. And I don't believe that that's where true compassion comes from. True compassion comes from recognizing, yes, I could be in that situation, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. You know, and so I think it, it's more of a, uh, you know, a recognizing that it's a, part of the human condition. It could happen to me, not like... While these poor people, they're in rough circumstances, but, you know, I'm better than that or smarter than that or whatever we may tell ourselves to think that that could never happen to us, but we pity them. So I think that's a huge difference. Yeah, I think in compassion, there's no place for superiority. If you've just joined us, we're talking with Virginia Sampson about Compassion, Compassion Magic, her book, and we'll talk more about that as well. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And, and Virginia, when you look at the, the photos and video coverage we saw in Katrina, and now we see in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, and you see how desperate people are, uh, how could you not feel compassionate and, and want to help them? No, I agree, and I think that we are at our best when we um, 
see people in tragic circumstances like that, especially if, as research shows, if they're more like us, we tend to be more compassionate with groups that we feel are more like us. But I think the challenge is to be compassionate in other circumstances and perhaps to people that aren't like us, don't look like us, don't come from our socioeconomic background, whatever the differences may be. It's a little bit more difficult to be compassionate. Um, and I don't know, offhand, I don't know all the reasons why. I'm not sure the researchers do, but uh, it is a more difficult situation to be compassionate. And I think that's where our challenge lies. Well, how do we implement this compassion? How do you recommend, if we're talking to family caregivers, what's the role of compassion for the family caregiver in their daily life? Well, first of all, I think when you're talking about caregivers, um, and I remember uh, this with my husband when I was taking care of him, you really have to be compassionate with yourself first. So it's such a difficult, I mean, I can't even, there isn't even a word to describe how difficult I think it is to be a family caregiver. And I think you have to practice self-compassion, which is showing to yourself the same kindness and care you would show to a friend that was in the situation. And, um, a lot of that, what I experienced was finally recognizing that there is no perfect caregiver. You know, every day you you could kind of criticize yourself of, well, I didn't do this right, and I didn't do that right, and I could have been more caring, and I could have been more loving. And I think you, you just have to let that go and just say that you're doing the best you can, and it comes it's coming from a place of love and caring, and that we're not perfect. And I think that's part of the start to self-compassion. There's more to it than that, but I think that's a good start for family caregivers which sounds e you know that sounds easy but we all know how difficult it is because we you know we we do tend to have that guilt hanging around our necks um, as caregivers thinking that we need to be perfect yes and I think it's a you know some of it I, I think is cultural we, we live in a, a culture where we tend to blame people and criticize people and judge people and that those have no place in compassion whether it's compassion for yourself or compassion for others that that does not involve any judgment, any criticism. Um, you you need to get away from that in order to be compassionate. Again, whether it's with yourself or with it someone else. So you know, criticizing yourself and judging yourself is as bad as doing it for someone else. And people get worried when you say that. That's not talking about becoming narcissistic. That's just learning to forgive yourself and recognize that you're doing the best that you can. Now, you were dealing with a situation uh, with your husband uh, suffering from ALS. Uh, what an awful, terrible disease. Uh, how long were you his caregiver? Uh, three years. He had he lived about three years from the time of the diagnosis till the time of his death. So you saw him go downhill pretty quickly. Yes. I would say the first 18 months, uh, so I, I, I was practicing law and I quit practicing law to take care of him and so I'd say the first 18 months he didn't necessarily need me full-time I just kind of needed to be around and help him but it seems like the last 18 months uh, were really difficult and the last I'd say five or six months he was basically bedridden and I did have some help then because I had you know four kids and a little toddler um but yeah three years I understand is about the average on that now I'm assuming I'm assuming this was not the spouse who uh, was battering you. No, no, I was divorced from that spouse, um, and because then you I remarried. He would have disconnected his <laughs> ventilator had it been. Yes, yes. You know, I've, I've learned that it's funny. You come to that conclusion that you really, um, you really, I, I don't think this is my take on that. I don't think you can really take care of someone to that degree unless you really, really love them. It has to come from a deep place of love. Otherwise, I think it just becomes too daunting a task right, uh, we, to do it. We had a, a, one of our caregivers that was her children asked her to take back her her husband, whom she had divorced. He'd run off with somebody else who didn't want to take care of him when he got Alzheimer's. And so she, uh, because her children asked her, took her ex-husband back in to care for him. It was incredibly difficult. Yeah, Wow. No, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that would be one of those, but uh, the kids would, I would be like, okay, I don't think so. We've had caregivers <laughs> who uh, who are caring for a father who had abused them, women who were abused as children who ended up a caregiver for that guy. Uh, I don't know how they do it, frankly. 
that's some real compassion. There you are. Now, I, I want to find yeah. out from you in, in just a couple of moments uh, after we do a little business here at RN. Uh, your bio mentions that you uh, teach compassion, you set up with small groups, you show them uh, ways in which they can do this. I want to find out how that works, if you could walk us through that. I'm Ron Aaron, our special guest on our Caregiver SOS on our hotline, Virginia Sampson. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here as well. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. If you're Medicare eligible, have I got a great deal for you. Absolutely free, and it's full of fun. You can explore all of the stuff at the new Witty on Broadway. Join WellMed for WellMed Day at the Witty. 10 a.m. to noon, Thursday, September 21st, and you'll enjoy the new witty and a chance to meet all of the great folks at WellMed. Free food, too. Join us on September 21st at the witty, 3801 Broadway. No registration needed. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it, but with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We're talking on our Caregiver SOS On Air Hotline with Virginia Sampson, a lawyer and author, a caregiver who has been through a whole lot in her life. Uh, her book for adults, Compassion, Magic, and a children's series about compassion with superhero Sam Saves His Family. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And as we talk with Virginia, Carol, I know you've got a million questions. Well, you know, I, I'm fascinated by this whole idea. I mean, I think it is a very timely topic. Um, it, you know, we hear a lot about mindfulness, but this idea of compassion, there's something, Virginia, about compassion that feels very open. It feels like you almost, you know, all the hard places inside of you, you have to kind of let those soften up uh, to put yourself in a place of compassion. Yes, I think um, the competitiveness the judging, the criticism, uh, those negative ways that we see the world do have to melt away to really be compassionate. And it's one way we can develop compassion. It's one of the tools that I teach. And it's one of the, if they have, there's a lot of people teaching this and they've discovered at Berkeley and Stanford that that's critical to developing compassion. What is, what is critical? Mindfulness. It's one way to develop compassion. And people define it differently. One of the simple ways is to be mindful of people when you talk to them. Um, You know, really listen to what they say. Be engaged with them. Um, Respond to them. Connect with them. Because compassion really is about connecting with other people. And, And that's why one reason it feels so good when we are compassionate is we're connecting with people, and that actually taps into our biology. Because believe it or not, we are not programmed for survival of the fittest, as we've been, you know, heard for so long. We are programmed to be a caring, supportive community. And, and yet... And uh, they see... Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. And I'm saying they've actually studied the brain, and they can see changes in the brain when you act compassionately, and you connect with people, and you do good things, caring, giving things. Maybe if it pumped out more dopamine, you'd feel even better about being compassionate. Yes, well, you can. And actually, that's one of the fact, one of the things that can change. Uh, it, it, it does affect your pleasure centers in your brain. See, I always thought that you know you're either born with compassion, you got it, or you don't have it. And and what I hear you saying uh, is you can teach compassion. Yes, yeah, some people have it. I, I do think some people have just a stronger sense of compassion naturally. But yes, they're they're. Uh, 
teaching it in schools now. Some school districts do a social-emotional learning, and one component of that is compassion. I actually developed a curriculum that goes along with my book just to develop compassion in children. I, I, my personal opinion is children are usually very compassionate, and they've done a lot of studies about this. But, you know, as we get more socialized, you can lose out on your compassion. So um, I think that uh, that's one of the issues with it is... Uh, you know, that that you can't, yes, you can teach it. You can teach it to adults. You can teach it to children. Well, talk a little bit. You, you The title of your book is Compassion Magic. Why the title Magic? Because I do think that um, with all the science behind it, it is, a, it is something that I think can transform your life uh, and the way you see your life and how you feel about things and your outlook on life. And I think there's, to me, there's just a certain magic about that. Um, you know, it's like anything. You put all the science together, but when you experience it, um, you don't. You really can't pinpoint a date or a time or what happened, but all of a sudden you can, uh, when you have more of a mindset like that, you can see that it will. it is the way that you see your life and handle things in your life, and the transformation feels, feels rather magical. Well, you also talk about um, being more successful, not necessarily from a business standpoint, but creating success and happiness, you know, in all the different aspects of your life. Uh, Talk a little bit about um, compassion and success in life. Well, you actually can be more successful in business. There's an entire group of social scientists that have been studying that and actually find that you can improve your bottom line uh, when you create a culture of compassion at your business. Um, But when we talk about being successful, you know, we're talking about it means different things to different people, but in general, you know, in your personal relationships, they can become more rewarding. Um, In your communities, they can become more supportive and caring and help people succeed, I mean, in whatever their endeavor there may be. Um, in your schools, uh, creating a compassionate uh, atmosphere, a compassionate culture, again, helps people reach their goals, feel connected, be emotionally and physically um, healthier. I mean, compassion is great for your health, believe it or not. People are compassionate, live longer, um, and they are much happier, and it actually are much healthier. So, story in the news following... Uh uh, actually, during, in the midst of uh, Hurricane Harvey, J.J. Watts, an incredible defensive player uh, for, for the Houston football team, uh, jumped right in and he said, these people need help. We need to raise money. we got to help them. Uh, and in just two days, he's raised over $1 million to go to uh, victims of, of Hurricane Harvey. Uh, I don't know if that's a definition of compassion. It certainly is a definition of doing something good. Yes, yes. And I, I love those. Yeah, that's such a wonderful gesture. And I would like to see us, I think it's a little harder to be compassionate in our everyday life when we don't have a big event to focus on, um, whether it's being kind to a family caregiver who might be taking care of an elderly parent and her spouse that lives in the neighborhood, um, the salesperson at the cashier at the grocery store. I mean, it doesn't have to be a big act. I think it would be something as simple as being kind to them, asking them how they are, checking on them, offering to help them with something. I think that's a little bit more of our challenge in our world because we are so busy and preoccupied that we forget that it's the little kind, compassionate acts that really bind us together. I can give you an example of that. a better world. I'll give you a quick example uh, uh, in our line of work, and Carol, and I'm sure you do this as well, Virginia, I end up going to a lot of events, a lot of dinners and galas. And uh, I went to an event, and a bartender, a young woman, said to me, uh, it was an event I, I was at, and she said, you may not remember this, but I want to thank you because uh, just a couple months ago at an event, you called me by my name, and that made me feel so good. Yes. It was interesting. I never thought about it. I do that all the time if, if they have the printing on the name tag big enough. Uh, and uh, it really touched her, which then, of course, touched me. Yes. And it's interesting that you say that because they've established that compassion is contagious. So if I act compassionately or kindly towards someone, they're more likely to do the same to somebody else. 
and it can spread that way. That's and cool. it is, I think, the small acts that can make a huge difference in people's lives. Well, and I and I think that's true. I think about um, we work with Evelyn Greb, uh, who I'll call by name, uh, on our caregiver teleconnection, um, and I know her personally. She's a um, a licensed clinical social worker, a therapist, but she is always the most compassionate person. And I will find myself in situations saying. What would Evelyn do in this situation? You know, if you, if you your instinct is to things aren't going well, maybe I need to, you know, yell at this person or ratchet it up or get somebody's attention. And she always comes at it from an angle of we, you know, let's just make life better. Let's just work together and figure this out. We need a and, WWED bracelet. Yeah, and so Evelyn is really good at that, uh, and and it does make a difference. You know, using honey instead of sticks to beat people up. It does, and I think uh, one one of the things I want to mention about that in terms of dealing with other people is I think an important part of being compassionate is being vulnerable. I think that we tend to um, want to project this image of, you know, we have it all together or we're perfect or, you know, we don't make mistakes. And I think that prevents us from connecting with other people. And I think when you reach out to people in a compassionate way and say, look, I've made mistakes uh, I, uh, you know, I understand where you are. And they're more likely to open up to you and connect with you. And that was part of the point of Compassion Magic is I kind of lay all my faults out there and my mistakes. The idea being let's, let's share our vulnerabilities and our mistakes and, you know, what we've done in our life with others. And they're more likely to be open with you, and that's how we connect, I think. Well, how does someone get started? How do we introduce, you know, compassion into our lives? Just something simple. Um, we have, uh, there's a bunch of simple strategies that I have when I do talks or do programs, but one that comes to mind right now is you can just be just practice active listening. Um, you know, just listen to someone when they talk to you. Um, you know, repeat back what they're saying. Um, you know, don't offer solutions to them. Just really listen from your heart to what they're saying to you. Um, so that they can feel that somebody's really understanding what's going on with them. You may not have an answer for them, but just the idea that you've listened with an open heart, I think, and without judging or criticizing them or trying to give them solutions is a huge start. Practicing some random acts of uh, is great. It actually creates more happiness for the person that's practicing the kindness, and it starts to, you know, you start to develop habits, I think. Uh, like when I go out, not... I, Lord knows I'm not perfect, so I, would, I don't do this all the time. But when I go out now in the house, I try to put on my, you know, out of the office, I try to put on my compassion mindset that I am going to slow down and remember to, you know, be kind to the people that I interact with. I'm not saying that I always do it, but that's, I think we have to be mm. conscious about it these days because we are so busy and we are so, so many distractions that we tend to not focus on who we are meeting and who we are interacting with. We have an agenda or we're busy or we're looking at our phone. I think that's just a big way to start uh, because you're not going to find out what people need or how they feel if you're not tuned in to them. Well, uh, and I th- that's a great way to start. Well, and I love that. You know, recently my my 94-year-old uncle who lives in a nursing home and doesn't get out very often, he went out to dinner for his birthday and he went to pay the bill um, and somebody else in the restaurant had already paid it for him. And wow. he didn't know who the person was or, you know, but here you have a man who feels invisible most of the time. He's he's cognitively intact and he lives in a nursing home with a lot of people who unfortunately have dementia. And he it's really tough. And to have somebody see him, notice him and respond like that, you know, I just love that. Uh, and it made it just it made all of our days, not just my uncle's. That's a yes, cool story. That's huge. Yeah, those are the, that's a wonderful story. Now I'm going to ask you the, with the seniors. We we tend because I practice elder law now with seniors, and they do feel that they're invisible, uh, and that people don't honor you know honor them. You know, they're looked as kind of like if you go in the store, they're kind of annoying because they're slower or you know those kinds of things. I think that's it's great. They're very vulnerable and very much in need of our compassion. We've got about a minute left, and I, I'm going to throw you the impossible question. You write for. ThriveGlobal.com. What is it? ThriveGlobal.com is Ariana Huffington's newest uh, online publication. And the goal of the publication is to have people contribute 
articles uh, that will help people uh, thrive in their lives, whatever it may be. Um, I write about compassion, and but you know, there's just a whole series of articles, and she has a lot of she has programs and things like that. And the idea of this is let's let's have a publication devoted to helping us thrive as people and as a you know citizens of the world. So, if people want to get a hold of your book, how do they do that? It's on Amazon. Um, Compassion both Magic. Both of them are on Am- Compassion Magic and Superhero Sam Saves His Family, uh, which is a story of a little boy or a little girl who becomes a hero because he's thoughtful and compassionate and kind. Cool. Um, those are both online on Amazon under my name, Virginia Hunter Sampson. We did that because, believe it or not, there are a few other Virginia Sampsons. Huh. Um, and, uh, All right. Got to you know, stop I, you. I hope it inspires people to be compassionate. Got to stop you right there. And that's not a compassionate thing to say, but we got to move on. <laughs> Thank you, Virginia Sampson. Enjoyed talking with you. You take care. Bye-bye. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, and moi. If you're Medicare eligible, have I got a great deal for you. Absolutely free, and it's full of fun. You can explore all of the stuff at the new Witty on Broadway. Join WellMed for WellMed Day at the Witty, 10 a.m. to noon, Thursday, September 21st, and you'll enjoy the new Witty and a chance to meet all of the great folks at WellMed. Free food, too. Join us on September 21st at the Witty, 3801 Broadway. No registration needed. This is the fun part of our program. Not that all of Caregiver SOS on air isn't fun, but take 10, which we do at the end of each of our shows. 10 minutes with Carol Zerniel, a nationally known psychotherapist, expert on addictions and on caregiving. Dr. Jamie Heisman, kick around a topic, and we hope you enjoy this part of the program. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and Dr. Jamie Heisman is with us. And Carol, you threw out a, a, an interesting topic, which is... So true, it's scary. Why do we find so much depression uh, among caregivers and their care recipients? Well, you know, this is really the common denominator uh, in aging and in caregiving. It is that depression is very, very high in both sets. And so, Jamie, you know, why why do, you know, we see depression in older people in the care recipients. So why, you know... Is that something new? Is it different? You know, why is that? And then what might be some of the causes of depression in caregivers? You know, this is an ideal topic, uh, especially now in the news that we're looking at. Um, There's been a recommendation from Washington, D.C., two primary care doctors to screen now everybody for clinical depression. I mean, for one time it was pregnant moms, obviously, for postpartum, which is a dangerous, dangerous condition which can create either homicidal rage or, or, or suicidal um, sort of, uh, of energy. But right now, we're looking at the entire population. And to your question, Carol, depression is, is all about also unresolved loss, unresolved grief. As we grow older, we grieve things that we had in our lives but don't have people that were in our lives that aren't today. Um, and I think we have to discern for this particular segment, are we talking about clinical biochemical, endogenous depression, or are we talking about situational depression? Because situational depression we find is rampant, but, uh, but there is clear diagnostic criteria around biochemical depression. Tell us what the differences are between those labels. Well, well biochemical depression, it, it, I think the easiest way to discern this, Ron, is if you see and perceive somebody with signs of depression, which may be you know, lack of sleep, it might be uh, isolation, feeling low, uh, far beyond the blues, if you will, um, and, and somebody who, who obviously is, is crying all the time. If you see these behavioral characteristics for at least two weeks or greater, um, our DSM-5, which is a diagnostic statistical manual for mental health, says that that is biochemical depression and needs an assessment and evaluation immediately. Um, the other side of it, the flip side, which is more situational depression, we all go through. We're all labile. We all go ups and downs, um, have good days, sometimes bad days, um, feel beaten up. You know, sometimes you get the bear or the bear gets you. Uh, that's a different sort of thing episodically. Also, biochemical depression has a greater link to genetics. Um, and it usually actually, oddly enough, is disproportionately a sex-linked 
depression, which means it comes through the mother's side disproportionately, not always. So, um, so there's this, what you've ex- described in depression um, is, is very, very common, and people don't really recognize it. I know we've talked in the past. So the situational depression, when you're an older person and you've had the losses like you've described, loss of functioning, loss of friends, loss of family, you know, maybe loss of driving, loss of vision, and so now you can't do the activities. All of that accumulates, whereas, you know, at younger ages, we might get hit with one or two things in, in the elderly. It can just bump up against each other one after the other and cause um, depression. And and for that kind of depression, uh, you know, obviously treatment and support groups but that kind of situational, there there are interventions, you know, we, we can grieve, we can let people know we're grieving and go through that grief, um, and that process can help. But there's also actually some other things that we can do, such as, Jamie, what would you recommend for those that are just really, it is situational, they've, they've just had a tremendous loss in their life? Well, you know, it's not surprising that women and, and, and men um, have clinical depression as we get older, and there is, to me at least, um, a real high need for us to, to wake up and smell the coffee because there's a huge suicide rate in seniors today that, that's very, very scary. Uh, with men over the age of 85, the suicide rate is 45 out of, out of 100,000, but that, that's very, very high. Well, and, they, and older men are the most successful, so not only do they have the higher rate, but they actually complete. They're more successful in their suicide attempts. Absolutely, Carol. Absolutely, and um, often, yeah, as you said, even with women, uh, it, it, though it's tragic, no matter how you look at it, uh, it is often a cry for help. And and you you'll see one as the men will use a gun for the for or something like you said, it's very finite and done deal. And often with women, you'll see them, um, you know, use pharmaceuticals or or drugs and, and something that is more of that reach out for help. But to your point, uh, I truly believe the number one hedge. Uh, against depression um, is cognitive therapy and group work. Now, when I say group work, it's very difficult to find group therapy in many communities today. I am talking literally now about support groups. The beauty of Caregiver SOS and what you do in, in, in throughout the state of Texas is you provide support groups in real time, and you have people in all seats around you who can actually monitor they know the emotional ability of the person in front of them, and they can reflect back to them. So my number one thing is, is to get therapy and to get somebody who's knowledgeable in geriatric care and get yourself a support group. Let me come back to suicide for, for just a quick moment because you laid out uh, what a huge risk and threat it is, especially to men 85 and over, for the caregiver uh, and for others who, who come in contact with that individual what should they look for? What are the signs? And what should they do to intervene? Well, in depression itself, it's a good question, Ron. Um, there are things to look for. There's a unusual fatigue that their loved one, you know, that they, people know the, uh, how your loved one is or was. And, and if you see that fatigue entering or the energy getting lower and lower, that's something to be concerned about. Losing your interest in favorite activities um, is another huge one. Also, look for unexplained uh, weight loss, um, change of sleep habits, um, feelings of worthlessness. And also, as we all know, and it seems to be something we hear, but is very, very true, look for somebody who is actually starting to give away personal items and uh, of their own and understand, and this is very important, that not all people who are about to commit suicide are showing you overtly depression. Some of them have come to peace and are actually going to do it with a smile on their face. Yeah, that's a very good point. And the other thing that uh, I think it's important, and, and Carol, I didn't mean to jump in on this, but uh, to say to that individual, uh, are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of taking your own life? Uh, that won't trigger suicide, but you may get answers that lead you to get them help right away. Touche, touche. I think we dance around this. Um, I do believe that a, a good clinician, again, and also support groups. I mean, they're intuitive groups that that can understand and see this. And, and uh, I do think you should ask the question. And th- what we do as clinicians, we'll determine that people always, unfortunately, somehow it have suicidal ideations. It's kind of a fantasy. Um, you know, I, I, this is going to kill me. If I don't get this, I'm going to hang myself. You hear things like that. 
and um, and those are not the things that, that, that we're talking about. So. Well, um, so quickly in just a little bit of time that we have, let's talk about the caregivers. So we see depression in caregivers as well, and it's probably, you know, the different causes, but there's situational depression that impacts the caregiver, correct? Absolutely, and this is also, Carol, where burnout and compassion fatigue comes in. Um, you've heard me talking constantly about this, this topic, especially with caregivers. Um, compassion fatigue is, is, is like um, post-traumatic stress disorder, except compassion fatigue is being in the presence of somebody else's trauma that triggers your own, where PTSD is obviously internal. You've experienced a horrific issue, and, and either one of them, either one of these traumas, could create fatal results. But um, caregivers are natural. I mean, let's face it, as soon as they find out they're a caregiver, it's like a two-by-four hitting them, that they have to then be concerned about their job, how their family's going to come around, how the relationship is with their family, and how the relationship is with their loved one. And many of them get resigned to this helplessness and hopelessness uh, when they don't have the proper support. This is such a powerful topic. We should do this again because there's so much more to explore, Carol. Well, absolutely, and I, you know, I know we're running out of time here, but the bottom line is that we'd like all the caregivers out there to have depression on their radar screen, depression in their loved one or if they're feeling depressed. And no, they don't, neither one of them has to feel that way. There are interventions, there is support. Um, and Jamie, a good website to go to if they wanted to find a therapist, someone to help intervene? Well, actually, you can go to Psychology Today, put your zip code in, and see if they work with seniors. Um, I want to echo what you say before we end this segment. Look, depression is highly treatable, and there is nothing, I think, over the years that we've come further in in terms of mental health than the psychopharmacology associated with depression. You do not have to suffer with depression. It is important to get assessed, evaluated, get on the proper medication, get therapy. This is not a hopeless situation. In fact, uh, it's become extraordinarily hopeful if you're compliant. Got to stop you right there. That's the coda on this topic. Thank you. Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. He's Dr. Jamie Heisman. You hear us on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. If you're Medicare eligible, have I got a great deal for you. Absolutely free, and it's full of fun. You can explore all of the stuff at the new Witty on Broadway. Join WellMed for WellMed Day at the Witty, 10 a.m. to noon, Thursday, September 21st. And you'll enjoy the new witty and a chance to meet all of the great folks at WellMed. Free food, too. Join us on September 21st at the Witty, 3801 Broadway. No registration needed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.